The Aggies, the Jazz, the high schools. If it's the sport you care about, we're talking about it. The Full Court Press on Sports Talk Radio, 106.9 FM, 1390 AM. The Fan. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Eric Franson with you here on a Friday. We made it to Friday. Uh, it's kind of a downer Friday for a lot of Aggie fans. Uh, frustrating loss last night in the spectrum to Colorado State. We'll talk about that. What happened? How did it take place? Uh, what adjustments will need to be made for this team to get back on track as they've got more conference games coming up next week? But a little bit of a breather here as they had uh, four games in about seven days. So good chance for Utah State to collect their breath a little bit and refocus as they get ready for the back half of conference play. Uh, Utah Jazz had a nice win last night uh, after being down by double digits. Got things even about halftime and then pulled away in the third quarter and never looked back in the fourth. Um, And then, of course, there's been a lot of controversy with some things that happened after the game with Shaquille O'Neal and Donovan Mitchell. And uh, I guess if you want to weigh in on that as well, I'll be honest, I didn't see it in real time. but uh, watching it and, and seeing a lot of reactions today after the fact, it's been kind of interesting. And I think it, it, it brings up an interesting discussion to be had about how do you separate who is, in, who is an all-star in the NBA and who is a superstar in the NBA. So we'd love to get your thoughts on that um, as well. Feel free to weigh in, 435-339-0321, or message us directly through the 106.9 The Fan mobile app. And, uh, Ajay, let's um, – one other thing that we're going to be kind of excited about a little bit later on. Um, we had Ross Peterson on with us last month, a historian, uh, certainly has a, a professor at Utah State, has done a lot with civil rights, uh, different movements that are going on, and a professor of history. Kind of a significant day for history and for sports – uh, Hank Aaron passed away today, uh, one of your Atlanta Braves, and uh, he did a lot to kind of break down a lot of color barriers. He broke Babe Ruth's record, and for fans of the game, that was exciting you know, to see uh, a record that had been for so long, and he was able to chase it and then, then beat it, uh, but it also brought up a lot of racial tension at the time. And uh, Ross Peterson loves baseball, and he's definitely a history buff. So we're going to have him back here on the show. So he'll be joining us next hour. So stick around uh, for that. So that, that should hey, be fun. So I was uh, I was reading something really interesting uh, that he had. So when he was elected to the Hall of Fame in '82, uh, he was named on I think 406 of 415 ballots. That means Eric. Nine riders in 1982 did not vote for a player, that being Hank Aaron, who had more home runs and RBIs than anyone in the history of Major League Baseball. And he's a player who finished with 3,771 hits, three gold gloves, and 25 all-star appearances. But yet nine riders said, nah, doesn't make my Hall of Fame list. That's how petty and pathetically unknowledgeable some of these writers are who who got the honor to vote. And that's it's such a shame. And it's such a sham. 
And it's such a disgrace to the league when you have these people who have agendas. Well, the, when it comes to the Baseball Hall of Fame, those who vote, they're littered with agendas. And it's embarrassing. And you and I have discussed this many different times before. Um, they have really petty reasons why they won't let someone. Oh through. yeah, absolutely. But for the fact that Hank Aaron wasn't a unanimous selection, it speaks to uh, racism that still existed then. Yep. And and some who knows the other petty reasons that somebody yeah. may have thought to keep. Well, him and out. then the other thing, I mean, another there's a couple other crazy numbers. One of them is that he he played from fifty five to seventy five. And he was selected as an all-star in uh, for 21 seasons. By the way, that's a, that's 21 consecutive seasons, Eric. And as an all-star, which is the most in MLB, NFL, NBA, or NHL history. That's amazing. And then uh, you erased the 715 home runs that he had, and he'd still have 3,000 hits. I, man, un- unbelievable. And again, and like what you mentioned, as great of a baseball player as he was on the field, he had just as big of an impact, no, excuse me, a bigger impact off the field in regards to the racial tension, breaking the color barrier, barrier allowing other, uh, at the time, what they would call uh, Negro athletes to enter into the game of baseball and play. Like him, and there's, and there's lots of others, right? I mean, but him and Hank Aaron... I set forth, I mean, just swung the doors right open for groups and groups of African-American um, baseball players to play in the league. Uh, Willie Mays, right? Willie Stargell. She's uh, Ozzie Smith. Um, I mean, the list goes on. And uh, and it's it. I think that's what he should be recognized just as big and more than his accomplishments on the field. Uh, he passed away today. He was 86 years old. Yep. He still is the career leader in total bases and RBI. He's third in hits behind Pete Rose and um, Ty Cobb. And, by the way, he has the most home runs versus Hall of Fame pitchers. Yeah, that's a great point. It's not like he was racking these home yeah. runs up against yeah. softballs. And, by the way, and it's and it's well ahead of second place. He had 72 the great Willie Stargell, uh, part of the We Are Family Pirates, has had 62. Babe Ruth was at 59. Willie McCovey, 58. And Willie Mays, 56. It's incredible. And he did it without steroids, by the way. I mean, there was no... I mean, you think what he would have done now, and there is questions, suspicion, investigations, on and on and on. Not with this. Uh, it was It was flat-out clean. And uh, yeah, one of the greats to play the game, and um, oh, and he he lived a heck of a life too. So uh, and did it with grace too. Oh yeah, you know, all like, the time. It it, uh, it would have been very easy for him to lash out or get frustrated. And yeah, speak openly about some of these things, but he was a class act. Which any you know uh, his success, the way he handled it, paved the way for lo- for many many many. Other people, not just athletes. Yeah. Many other people. Agree. 100% agree with you. 
Uh, I want to get to our text line, 9315 text in. I gladly take one USU loss now so we don't have it later like the Mountain West Tournament. Mm. I know we would have one last night if they would play better on defense. Uh, go Aggies. P.S. The ringmaster had an amazingly photo, an amazing photograph from the oh. spectrum. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I looked at Keta. He looked at me, and I was like, and he kind of stopped, and I said, just keep shooting. Okay. So, yeah, thanks to, thanks to Keta for that help on that one. Um, I haven't seen that. I have to go now. I have to search through your Twitter, which is uh, an adventure usually. But oh, stop I'll go see it. what I can find. No, stop it, okay? Now the Patriots aren't in the playoffs. All right, it's going to quiet down a little bit here for the next few days. It's usually an event. And you know what the worst part is, dude? But your your boy my bishop Tom is and still my there. my bishop and my high councilman follow me. That sucks. Then That's you really got to be careful. Keeps what you, you say. on your toes. Oh, it sucks, dude. If you're listening, please unfollow me, block me, or something, so you don't have to see my tweets. Uh, no. Uh, I'm sure we'll get into the Aggies here in just a little bit. Um, you know, it it, it is like people are like, oh my gosh, we lost the game, we lost to Colorado State. Ah, oh. I, I mean, and he's right. Nine three one five is spot on. Better to lose to Colorado State than to lose to UNLV or Fresno in the next couple weeks. Here's the problem. Because of the way the top half of the Mountain West Conference is built, you have very little room for error if you want to finish in that two spot or continue to compete for the one spot. Which means, Eric, they have to sweep UNLV, they have to sweep Fresno State, they have to sweep Nevada and Wyoming going into Boise State. Because I don't know... I mean, and, and this is just pure hope. I I hope that Boise State slips up against Colorado State. I hope they slip up against San Diego State. I do not think they'll. I don't think they're going to lose to Nevada. So you're looking at hopefully two losses, and then depending on what happens with us, maybe three, maybe four. Utah State has gone through two of the top three teams in conference yep. with one loss. Yeah, that's I mean, that's not that's not bad. It's not bad at all. No. Uh, and I think it would have been foolhardy to think that they were going to roll through this year undefeated. Yeah. I, there was a slim of confidence. I think after the way they had dispatched Colorado State in game one, I got to be honest, I got overconfident. I mean, you yeah. you said it, Eric, yesterday. You said this game is going to be much tougher than game one. Colorado State will make adjustments, and Utah State's going to have to um, not fiddle around maybe make their adjustments to that. And they just, they look tired. They look gassed. Um, they could have found himself in foul trouble at the wrong time, on and on and on. And like you said, you said it yesterday, that Colorado State was going to be a different Colorado State team than game one. And they definitely proved that. I was, I was dang well impressed with Colorado State and the way they played. Okay, so what were those bigger adjustments? Uh, I'm, unfortunately, I wasn't there. I wasn't able to watch it. Yeah. Uh, I was in Salt Lake watching another game. Just like a darn good game too, actually. And yours fun. ended up on the right side of the bed. Yeah, so that ended up right. Uh, but like, so how how much was Thursday night different from Tuesday night? Okay, no, that's a great question. Really quickly though, nine eight three five says uh, on in regards of Hank Aaron. So I got to get back to this. He had a thousand more total base hits than the number two man on the list. Oh, jeez. Oh man, you know no nobody's baseball stats blow my mind more than Hank Aaron and Tony Gwynn. Like they're the numbers that they had of consistency at the plate are just stupid good. It's almost unfair that they were even able to play the game. Uh, 
two of the best in the biz. So, anyways, and and Tony Gwynn's passed, right? If I think Tony he Gwynn, no, he hasn't died. Tony Gwynn Jr. hasn't passed. Are we sure? I'm pretty. Help me here, nine eight three five. If you're listening here still with us, uh, I'm pretty sure he passed away. No, oh, he did. Tony Gwynn. He died in 2014. He did. Okay. Yeah. Ah, I forgot about that. So two of the two of the best hitters in baseball. Um, a couple of the best hitters in baseball. I mean, there's Pete Rose, obviously. Um, but that I've passed that on. No, no, he wasn't. I can't remember what he passed away from either. I've I, salivary gland cancer. Really? Ugh. Ben, he was. Oh man, I forgot. I had totally forgotten about that. Yeah. Dang it. Um. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, again, rest in peace to Hank Aaron and and uh, and uh, Dustin Gnolds to the family and friends of those and teammates and coaches and who are all around him. Uh. Okay. Going back to uh to to Boise State. Um. To Boise State. Sorry, not Boise State. I just read a tweet that was talking about Boise State or Texas was talking about Boise State. That's why I looked at that. Uh, nine three one five Texas says Boise will have a hard time at Colorado. I do agree, and he says I'll save for the now for the record. USC will beat Boise at least once, and seventy five percent they beat them two times. I like the confidence. Problem is, I was confident yesterday, and we got nearly ran out of the gym at one point. You know, Eric, it was interesting. The Yankees went up eighteen to eight really quickly. Um, and you thought this was going to be another runaway for the Yankees. And then uh, Deshaun Thomas hits three threes, uh, one from the right wing, one from the top, and I think one from the corner, if I remember right, Eric. And, uh, and, and so then Utah State makes an adjustment to that, and then Deshaun Thomas doesn't shoot another three, I don't think, for the rest of the game. I'll have to look that oh, wrong Sorry. I don't think Deshaun Thomas shot another three after that. He didn't. No, he shot one more late in the game. So he went three of four. But so after Utah State made adjustments, Sean Thomas just stopped shooting threes for a while. And so then they had to counter back to it. And uh, I just felt like the adjustments that Coach Medved made were were really, really good. And then the other thing, and I think you talked about this yesterday, Eric, they were dogs on defense. Colorado State was. I mean, just harassing Raleigh harassing uh, Ashworth, uh, I mean, just in their grill, just physically beating him up. And the refs were kind of interesting. Um, they would call a lot of off-ball stuff, but anything on ball, they were just letting go. I mean, really, like, I think there was a few times where, and I'm not going to count Ashworth in this because I think Ashworth kind of flops um, or sells it a little bit too much. But Raleigh definitely was able to come in and I, they just beat him up. I mean, they would just not let him to get any kind of flow or rhythm. He was struggling to get open looks. He did get a couple, uh, and he actually hit a couple too. But just the physicality of Colorado State's defense, especially along that perimeter, was menacing for the uh, Aggies. And then the final thing, I think it's the most glaring and obviously thing, Colorado State has created a blueprint for every team that plays the Aggies from here on out. That blueprint is the 1-3... Was it one, one two three? three. One. Yeah, one. Yeah, sorry, one three one zone, and it just ate Utah State alive. I mean, they looked. There was one possession uh, on our on our near side in front of the Aggie bench where 
Like, Raleigh comes around to curl, is in the corner. Ashworth is standing, like, two feet from him. And Coach Smith is looking at Raleigh like, what are you doing? Space. And then Brock comes to the corner because he feels like he's forced over. Like, that defense, that zone, forced the Aggies, like, to take any sort of space they had. Or at least feel like they had no space at all. It was so well done and so well executed by the Rams. And and Coach Smith said that they planned for it. That they, I mean, they knew they did it. It just, I mean, it just looked different when you see it in person. And it just, it, it threw that Aggie offense all out of sorts. They not seen too many zone defenses no. this year? No. A lot of it's been man. A lot of it's been man. Which is, and I'm kind of surprised, but like I said, that's a blueprint. I mean, if, if you're Boise State or if you're Nevada and you're athletic as those teams, you are running that zone all 40 minutes long of the game. Make them beat you. And if they do, they do. Give them credit. But you make them beat you with it. So this game, um, Utah State jumped out to that big big start. Then they start making some threes, and they get back into it. But still, it was it was a back-and-forth game. I mean, Colorado State had a, a, about a six-point lead. Utah State is able to close the gap and pretty much make it even at halftime. It's back and forth in the second half until about six and a half minutes to go. Yeah. And then Colorado State just separates. So what was it? What was such the big difference where Utah State just started to clam up while Colorado State was able to continue to execute? Oh, that's easy. Um, here, I'll tell you right now, actually. Hold on. I've got it. I did have it. Son of a biscuit. Uh, give me your. Do you have the final numbers there? Because I don't. I thought I did. The final num- final box? Yeah, for the game. Yeah. Three-point shooting was what for the Aggies? Uh, it was 8 for 31. <laughs> Free throw shooting was what for the Aggies? 14 of 22. Guess what? Every time you Colorado State had a good look for three, they hit it. Roddy was great. Roddy was awesome. Roddy was a man. Uh, they had the uh, young cat quick as a... Uh, Stevens? As a, yeah. And he hit a couple of big ones, too, and he got to the hoop on a couple of... Bro, a couple of broke down possessions, but they just hit their shots. Eric, when they had good looks, they hit them. That was monstrous. And then the free throw line... And I know we're talking about down the stretch free throws as well when they had to foul, but Colorado State didn't miss. Well, Utah State was eight for thirty-one, but didn't like three or four of those come in the last two minutes or minute and a half when they're trying to. Yeah, three did. Three did, I believe. They're, they're uh, Brock had one. I think Raleigh had one, and Ashworth had one. So there's three. Um, and then what was Colorado State's free throws? Twenty-five of twenty-nine. Yeah, dude, they were they were incredible. They were just really, really, really good. And I think eight of those came in the final minute. So, I mean, take that away. But they were still really good from the line. They made their free throws. So, we make five free throws. We lose by six, right? Or eight? Lost by eight. Lost by eight. So, you make five free throws and hit one three. We're having a totally different conversation, probably. Um, 9463 texted in, too. I love this text. Um, I think USU figured out who they turn to when they need a bucket in desperation mode, and that's Ashworth. I was impressed that he was ready and willing to take and make some big high-pressure shots, and it seemed that the rest of the team was turning to him and tried to feed him in those desperation shots in the last two minutes. Sometimes you learn a lot more in losses like this than you do in wins. I abs- You know what? Good Craig point. Smith pointed that out in his presser, too, that you win, that like you find out a ton more about yourself in these kind of losses. And I think for Ashworth, I think he gains more confidence. 
I think for Raleigh, I think he's got more. Con- Raleigh shot well yesterday, by the way. I thought Raleigh played really, really good basketball yesterday. I thought he was. I thought he was really good. Well, he's been struggling a little bit uh-huh. seeing the ball go through the hoop. Yeah. I think he's been getting progressively a little bit better. But he finished with twelve points, five assists, two steals, four rebounds. I mean, it was a good day. Yeah, nine three one five. I think except the, for obviously losing. <laughs> watch this back and forth. Nine three one five. I think the freshman not being in this uh, kind of situation before helps us lose this game. They're smart and will get better. So I don't think it happens again with the freshman. I would agree. I think close game. Look, they haven't been through a close game since maybe San Diego State. I mean, they were down by ten and a half and then had to come back. But just to kind of go through that grind where you are treading against the the current. And that's what the Aggies were doing for the entire second half is just treading against the current. I mean, you 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 climb it to like within seven, then you're down by eleven. Get it to five, down by ten, and that was just. I mean, it was it was that kind of a night for the Aggies. Uh, and then five seven six three text in and uh, and says that Ashworth had some really bad three point attempts. So here's the thing: is that he made a few, absolutely, but he took some really bad three point shots too at times. I, I mean, one of them he hit, I think he barely hit the other side of the backboard um, where he's kind of forcing it up. And But the thing is, is, is I uh, 9463 said he was the one willing to take those shots. He was the guy who was like, hey, give me the ball, curl around the screen, work his butt off, get an open look, and take it. And, and would I like to see Raleigh take more of those shots? You betcha. I'd love to see Raleigh get more shots like that. But Raleigh was getting just, I mean, abused by those guards. Not to his fault. They were beating him up and not letting him get any sort of kind of free space. And, again, that's part of the freshman wall you hit. So, yeah. Uh, interesting text here uh, from 9474. Ajay, that's only one part of the blueprint. The other is to have your big man bring Keta out to the perimeter, opening up the middle. Mm. We talked about that yep. yesterday. If opponent has a big who can shoot from three, forcing Keta outside, it puts USU in a terrible spot. And guess what other team in the conference has a big that can shoot from the well from the perimeter? Boise State. <laughs> and Boise State is going to give them problems. Like, I, again, Boise State, I think they're more athletic than San Diego State. And actually, you know what? I'll say that by a wide margin. I just... Boise State's incredibly freakish athletic. And on the defensive end, they move well. They guard well. They harass you. Um, I mean, they, yeah, they're well coached. That's going to be a problem at Extra Mile Arena in four weeks or whatever that is. But, uh, yeah, no, good good point by 9474. Really well uh, said. And 5763 clarifies, uh, good shots to take, speaking of Ashworth, but badly missed. He oh yeah. Oh, one absolutely. for nine. Oh, heavens, from three. yeah. Five, yeah. Five, seven, six, three. Absolutely. Yeah. There was a couple of shots. I was like, we don't need it right now. I mean, get to the hoop, try and draw a foul. Like you don't need that three right now. And another big possession. I think it was. And it remind me, Aggie, uh, our wonderful listeners, if I'm right here, we had forced a turnover on the on the press, and then we turn around. We don't have any timeouts. And we have to inbound it. And I think it was Ashworth inbounding and uh, a bounce pass to Brock. I and mean, he's like right in front of us. And Brock gets hacked. I mean, he gets held, then he gets hacked, loses the ball out of bounds, and they call it Colorado State's ball. And it was just, and again, it's just one of those nights. It's basketball. When you play this many games, you're going to have an off night. You're going to have a bad night. It's, it, like you said, it is tough to go undefeated in conference play. 
especially when you play a team, the same team, two uh, two games in three days. It's tough. It's it's exhausting. Uh, one last thing, speaking of Mountain West play, it uh, looks like there's a game that won't be happening uh, because of uh, an outbreak and contact tracing within the Boise State program. So their, uh, their game tonight against Fresno State has been postponed. The rescheduled date, this is according to the Mountain West, will be announced once finalized by the Mountain West and both institutions. So Boise State, Fresno State, that's going to be made up. Um, you have to look at both their schedules and uh, figure out when that'll be done, if that's uh, at, at the conclusion of the regular season before the conference tournament, because there is a bit of a buffer there the Mountain West has built Yeah, in. they have a week, right? I think it's a week space. Now the problem is, Eric, and this our Lady Aggies are in the same situation now. Um, you cannot, because they have a game two against San Jose State, two games versus New Mexico, one game against San Diego State, and you got to pick which games you got to make up. So if Boise State has any more cancellations, they got to go in that week and pick what games they want to make up. And then the following week, you have the tournament. That's And if it does come down to it, which it could, Boise State's going to need to play those games against Fresno State for seeding purposes. Well, so the game today is postponed, and I think it, it probably puts the games this, uh, later this weekend in Fort Collins in a bit of a question. Boise State's supposed to be at Colorado State on uh, the 27th. What day is that? Uh, Wednesday. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's gonna be close. If they have COVID issues, whether it's by and the question is, is it contact tracing or is it have they been hit with COVID? Well, the Mountain West statement is due to COVID nineteen issues within the Boise State men's basketball program. And yet to have what? What's required minimum? Seven, I think. I gotta remember what the required minimum is, man. Um, so that's a good question. I'm not sure. I want to say. West. I think BJ Reigns, our guy BJ Reigns, put that out. Uh, I think it is seven, which means, yeah, it's uh, wouldn't have the Mountain West minimum of seven scholarship players available. And this could be due to either positive test or contact tracing. We don't know yet. So they just need, I mean, again, I don't know how many guys are out. Oh, boy. And they need that Colorado State series now. Hey, let me ask you a stupid question, though. If you're Colorado State, are you okay having next week off, if you can, to rest and regroup? Or would you rather play next week? Because you got a little bit of momentum after uh, you just beat the Aggies. Yeah, I think I'd want to play. Yeah, would you? Okay. I'd, I'd feel like, hey, we've got something here. Let's... Let's go on to the next. Hey, uh, go, we'll go to break here. When we come back, I got to ask you, Eric, um, where would your biggest concern out of a game like this come from? Um, the the big uh, we saw a very clear drop off after Keta would go out with foul trouble. Dorius came in, and Dorius did his best, but he was just gassed. And then Alfonso, who's your small five, comes in. I mean, you're just asking too much for a guy to have to. I mean. Play play up to you know against what we call quote unquote trees, um. But yeah, well, I mean, so where does the problem come in? The drop off after Keta in the big man position, or guards not hitting shots? Uh, okay, that's. A, we'll, we'll I know it doesn't make sense. I break. promise I'll explain it better. I swear. All uh, right, yeah. So 
And we'll talk about other adjustments for Utah State. Uh, the Utah Jazz played last night. Um, interesting comments after, which has caused a lot of reactions. Celebrities, rappers, other superstars in the NBA. Co-workers. <laughs> and you know what? Uh, the vast majority are all supporting Donovan Mitchell. So we'll talk, we'll get into that. And what? how would you differentiate what makes a superstar versus just an all-star in the NBA? We'll talk about that coming up. On the Full Court Press. Talking the sports you care about. The Full Court Press on Sports Talk Radio, 106.9 FM, 1390 AM. The Fan. Eric Franson, Aj Salveson. Good question from 9315. Hit me. Who or what or who make the decision on which game they make up? So it's uh, uh, for example, I think it's the team that was hit with COVID. So, well, I guess I should say like this. So, um, the Mount West Conference, for example, give the Lady Aggies, um, because they were the ones that had the COVID issue, I guess, on who they want to play that week. So it's a team that was hit with COVID that had to have the game postponed of who they want to play that week coming up. But the other team has to agree to do so as well. Which, I mean, again, if you need seating help, you're going to play someone. I mean, that'd be crazy not to, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think you'd want to try to get those games. I think you'd want to try to get the games you feel that you're most confident in against your opponents that you match up against if there's multiples there. Yeah. But it could be tricky. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Hey, uh, okay, so Eric, let me rephrase my question for you. Uh, I kind of rethought it and want to ask a different way. How big of an impact on a scale of 1 to 10 would you say Keta in foul trouble and the drop-off, and I, and I say this respectfully, but the, the drop-off of however you want to measure that drop-off going to Dorius is? Right now, because like when Keta went out, we had Doris in, and Doris didn't play horrible. I mean, we still had a, uh, a few turnovers, but uh, and he had a great putback dunk. Oh my goodness gracious, he had a filthy one. But uh, just how concerned are you, and how uh, big of an impact does that uh, put? I feel like I'm asking a question. Like curious, George, uh, put on the uh, on the Aggies. Just going from Keta to Doris, how big of an impact, and how concerned are you just with that? Uh, yeah, there's definitely a difference between the two of them. Um, the the Aggies need Dorius to continue in his his progression as a player, to continue to improve and become uh, you know a good solid player for them. Um, there's been stretches where Keta could sit and it's okay. Dorius gives you okay minutes, uh, but but there's some times where Boy, you got to get Keta back on the court as quick as possible because the other team's going right to the hole. Um. So, but I mean, what other options are there? I mean, there are other big guys for Utah State on the roster. I mean, they're we, not getting playing time. No, we had to go to a small lineup for a while. And do you know what? Like, but those guys couldn't handle it. Like, Shulga would a uh, well. Like, if there's a, there's no way. If there's Zapala, a sorry. If there's a team that you could go a little bit smaller with, it's Colorado State. And we saw that yeah. in game two, in the game one, um, 
with uh, with Alfonso Anderson playing the the five yeah. out there with Justin Bean. But last night, a little different story. Yeah, again, I because they're not an overly big team. The Rams aren't an no. overly like. A, but do they were just physical? They don't have size like the. Well, look, I mean, do. like I mean, you can't be physical with Keta with them, right? But then, like with Alfonso or Dorius, they beat them up. Like they just they kind of pushed. I mean, Dorius again handled his own for the most part. But they were physical with Dorius, and they were physical with Anderson, and Anderson could take it without a problem at all. But they were beating him up too, and um, and got away with some calls. I would say honestly, but. Uh, yeah, I, I'm worried. It, it does concern me to see Ketty go out with foul trouble and just you see the lack. There's just nobody at the rim to guard. And and they just kept going at the rim, too, without Ketty there. And then Ketty comes back in, and they go at the rim again. But then Ketty picks up his fifth or no, his fourth foul, and it was just hard. It was hard the rest of the way because you can't play free. and um, It worries me. I mean, if, if a team can get Ketty into foul trouble like Nevada, or like Boise State, it's going to cause some problems. 9463 texts in. To answer Ajay's question, probably the same impact the Jazz get when transferring from Gobert to Tony Bradley. Oh, that's brutal. 9463. <laughs> Boo! Boo! No! At least Dorius knows what he's doing on the court. Tony Bradley looks like he's wearing pull-ups out there. <laughs> Tony, I mean, Tony Bradley gave good effort, but he was oh, routinely yeah. out you know of what? position. You know what? You know gave great effort. <laughs> Let you me did what I'm saying in rec ball games. But you know what? You still probably weren't that great. Just he was routinely out of position. Skip which Bayless made it hard for him to. Skip Bayless gave incredible effort his for his team, scoring 1.4 points per game. And you know what? He still sucked. <laughs> it's. I mean, look. You can give great effort. You can give 110 percent effort, and then just realize. That I don't know, basketball isn't in your future. And that would be the problem here. Basketball is not in Tony Bradley's future. Down East Outfitters, I'm sure, is hiring or somebody. He has a, he's still under contract. I, he's earning a lot of money to you be know a what? big man on well, the NBA. You know roster. what? I guess anybody should go travel for the Salt Lake City Stars and make the squad then. Oh, boo, though. Nine four six three. Come on. <laughs> You know better. <laughs> well, that's no, a great answer. Look, <laughs> <laughs> the Craig Smith, his coaching staff, and his team—they need to feel like if if Keta goes out of the game, they're not doomed. They, they need to feel yeah, like they can still some do some things and have confidence to still move forward. See, and that's the thing—and not like, just be biting their nails like. Uh, I know. Let's get a few How, more minutes. And just keep looking at the bench. We hang like, on exactly, until back exactly. in. Exactly. That's ex- and I think every, including myself, kept looking at the clock and like, okay, it's we're at the eleven. We're at we're like at the thirteen minute mark. Under eight. I mean, maybe under eight. We can get him back in. And then all of a sudden, you look at under eight, and you're like, now I got to keep him out for a little bit longer. And I mean, just yeah, you, you're I like what you said, biting your nails. See, that's what the great thing about Quinn Taylor was. Like when Quinn Taylor was on the court. There was no drop off. Like when you went from Quinn and Amish, there was no. It was flat and level. And uh, Quinn, was, or, or if anything, he provided a little bit different skill set. He could draw a guy out and hit a three. Yeah. And then, who was the backup for Amish last year? Was it Dorius? Yeah, it was Dorius, wasn't it? Or well, it was a combination. Cuba. Yeah, Cuba didn't belong on the court. Cuba, like Cuba, would have got eight and alive. 
yesterday against Colorado State. They would have cooked him for everything he's worth. Uh, Doris, again, I thought Doris was great. He had a great, great putback dunk. Um, man, he was gassed by, like, I think after five minutes, just exhausted. So, uh, yeah, uh, we need – and Keta, Keta's got to get quit. Keta has got to quit getting into foul trouble. Be smart. If you've got three fouls, but, but you've yeah, got two left. If I'm the opponent, smart. I'm doing what I can to negate Keta as much as possible. Sure, but go straight up, right? If you're standing straight like this, they can't call a foul on you. Like, they can't call a foul on you. You're straight up. It's clean. Um, And too many times he's this or he's moving or he's in the air. You do realize this is on radio. Oh, People can't see what? how you're shut positioning it. your shut, body. Shut it. You shut it. And contorting yourself. Okay, you know what? Well, maybe we do need those cameras here then, huh? <laughs> so people can see what I'm doing. Call. And you know what really sucks, Eric? Is I was about to guarantee an Aggie victory yesterday. Oh, by the way, I, I created a new soundbite when I want to guarantee things. You're going to love it. I'm going to share with you on Monday what that is. And we're going to hit it every time I want to do a, a guarantee. Guarantee of the week. <laughs> we need to get a sponsor for that, by the way. Uh, but no, it's look. It, and again, it's one loss in Mount West Conference play, and it's to a decent team. Um, but you've, uh, yeah, you got to be ready, though. I mean, this is, you got, UNLV's a good team. They're well coached. They got. They've won four straight. They're gonna put things together. I knew they would, and uh, they have confidence in them. And you know what? They get them at their house. I know there's no fans, but when you get a team at your house with this kind of a resume, we remember last year this happened, and UNLV, the running rebels, pun intended, ran, ran the Aggies out off the court. What are you smiling about? It's two four one seven. Please don't. Oh, come on, 2417. <laughs> come on. And a guarantee of the week. And I promise I will not do it against our favorite teams. Okay, I might do it for the Aggies. But that's it. And then uh, after, we can, uh, I don't know, we can create, we can call it the, the, uh, the jinxy meow of the week. So Utah State lost last night. They're 9-1 and one in conference play now. They're a, a game behind. In the standings, well, I guess technically a half a game behind Boise because um, they were supposed to play, but now they're not going to. But anyway, they're a game behind. Uh, Colorado State's a game behind the uh, the Aggies, and then it's Nevada and San Diego State with three losses apiece. Um, Utah State can't really afford too many of these, Ajay. If they want to keep pace, if they want a chance for an automatic bid, um, even if they don't win the conference tournament, that's what they're playing for. Um, and uh, that that makes it that makes it tough. But let's look back on the uh, the start that has been so far for this basketball team through 2020 2021. This conference start for Utah State does it rank up there in the among the best starts by Utah State uh, historically when you look at conference play specifically. So they're 9-1 in conference play. We're going to take a timeout here in the Full Court Press. And when we come back, our Friday 5 best, the 5 best conference starts 
for the Aggies. Love to get your thoughts on that as well. 435-339-0321 here on the Full Court Press. The Aggies are number one here. The Full Court Press. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and online at 1069thefan.com. Eric France and Ajay Salveson, Utah State Aggies. That's a good song right there, by the way. Off to a 9-1 start. Put your headphones on, you might hear it more. Uh, hearing your voice is good enough. <laughs> okay. So, uh, going into this game, Aggies were on a great start to the conference play. Um, certainly, the, uh, the, the, the two games over San Diego State stand out. But how does it compare to other starts in Utah State's history? So let's do our Friday five best. The five best starts to conference play. And you and I were talking later in the day, like, <laughs> what's our criteria? When do we cut it off? Is it the first couple of games, first five, first ten, overall record? So we decided through the first ten games, that's going to be our criteria because that's where Utah State is now. So how does this year compare? Does it make our f- top five? So Ajay, starting at number five. That's where we're starting? Yes. Okay, I'm going to start with the 2020-21 season. Great wins versus San Diego State, uh, but a bottom portion of the schedule. They dominated in, in incredible fashion. I mean, the way they were throttled, the way they have throttled opponents has been really impressive. But San Jose... Uh, I mean, they played so good that Seneca Knight quit the basketball team. Like, they shut them down. <laughs> Seneca's like, you know what? I ain't doing this anymore. I'm going to LSU. And now, uh, and they played so, and then they beat New Mexico so badly that McGee's like, well, this sucks. I'm out. So he left. Uh, and so they've destroyed teams. But the problem is, is that San Jose State hasn't been home for a while. New Mexico is in the same spot. Um... Air Force is a bad basketball team, still trying to get things, bearing their bearings under. They're going to be a good team in the next couple of years. San Diego State game two didn't have Matt Mitchell, and honestly, I think he makes a different kind of an impact in that game, if I'm going to be very honest with you. Uh, and then you were able to throw Carl State in uh, the game one, but in game two, you looked really flat from the get-go. And, and fa- by the way, a word that I kept hearing from players when I talked to a couple of them, they said they got out physical. And they just didn't ever expect that to happen. That's kind of interesting detail that they got out physical, but yet they didn't expect that to happen. Kind of interesting. So, 2021 season. Uh, I also have 2020, 2021 this year as number five on my list. Um, yeah, it's a, it was a great start. Some of those games, uh, the, those uh, first couple were blowouts, massive blowouts, 30-point wins, 40-point wins, just huge, just massive domination offensively and defensively, but it was against some really bad teams. Mm. Um, They beat San Diego State, which puts it up there. That's why it's in the top five. San Diego State perennially really, really good. Colorado State's on a resurgence, but they let one get away from them, and one of those wins over San Diego State, as you detailed, was – with one of their best players off the court, so they're not that uh, this season. Still, I, I put it in the top five, at, at number five. Yeah, and then again, that's not a not a bad thing. It's just more respect than anything. 
Hey, I uh, I debated this one for a while. Um, this one was kind of hard, but I'm gonna take the 1819 team at number four. Now they were off to an eight and two start, but you look at what they did. They went one and two in their first two games. They lost at Nevada, 72-49. Got just ran out of the gym. The second game, they come back and they beat uh, Air Force 79-62. Lost to Fresno State on a buzzer beater, 78-77. Uh, I guess they're a near buzzer beater, I should say. Uh, but then they go to Wyoming and San Jose State. They take care of business there. Colorado State in a grinder. They end up beating them 87-72. And then uh, New Mexico at the pit. This is why I like this one so much. They go to the pit. Abel Porter, onions on the three. Uh, and then they uh, come back and then beat uh, Fresno at Fresno for another big win. Kind of got them jump-started. Uh, ended up losing to San Diego State at San Diego State, but we know how that all finished. So, 18-19 team. Uh, for me, number four, the 97-98 team. That's Larry Eustace's last year at Utah State. Um, they uh, they had a 13-3 and overall conference record that year. Now, it was in the Big West. Some of those teams weren't household names. But it was still, it was tough competition. That was a really good Utah State basketball team. Um, and those were some, some of those games were pretty close. Those were dogfights. But the Aggies were a, a good, well-rounded team that year. And that's number four on my list. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, and now it gets tricky. Uh, I'm going to put the 03-04 team who started off at 12-0 and before their first loss uh, at Pacific 64-60. Uh, they, I mean, at this point, they're twenty and one, twenty and one, and uh, they were just phenomenal. They dominated opponents. A lot of these games are by double digits. I think all but one is going in that winning streak, and that's a six point win at Cal Poly. Really well rounded team with led by Spencer Nilsson. So the O three O four team. Uh, we did not coordinate before, but that is also my number three uh, -uh. season. The O three O four season. Uh, they came into the conference play with a head of steam. Great momentum on their side, and they started off those those ten games um, just playing. I mean, that's a, one of those great historic teams that a lot of people remember. Do you remember how that season tragically ended? <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, puke me. Uh, we're at number two, right? Yes. Okay, so number two and then, uh, number two, number one are are pretty tough. I'm going to take the ten and eleven team at number two. They uh, ran their record to an eleven and zero. Big wins at Boise State. Great win at, at Hawaii. That kind of really trended this team in, in a really huge direction. 89-84 in double overtime. The big win at uh, against New Mexico State. They beat Boise State and they swept Boise State in the series. This team was dominant. I mean, just flat out dominant. And they got screwed over badly in the seeding in the NCAA tournament. Uh, for me, number two is the 08-09 team. Yeah. Um, they went... Uh, Actually, went twelve and zero to start conference play. Finished fourteen and two overall that year, but they had four games decided by single digits during that stretch. So most of their games were ten points or more um, in, in that start of conference play. Just a great start for Utah State in that 08-09 season. And my number one is the 08-09 team. You talk about four of those games being by double or single digits. Two of those went to overtime. A six point win over Fresno State. A five point win over Wyoming. Um, it, look, it was hard to win in that conference. There was some talent, major talent in that conference, and the Aggies continue to find ways to win. Uh, they had a great record until they went to Boise State, lost by 10, uh, finished the year 30-4, and four, and then went to the uh, NCAA tournament, and I think we all know that story. 
And for me, I think we just flip flopped. Uh, for me, yeah. the, the the number one start to conference play was that 2010 2011 team. Um, started strong, kind of similar to 08 09. They uh, they're only a, a handful of games within that stretch that were decided by uh, a game that was decided by single digits. They only had five games that entire conference season decided by single digits. Hey, what's the more heartbreaking NCAA tournament loss for you? Oh, probably that Marquette one. Is it Marquette? Up in Boise. Kansas still eats me alive because I think if we go to overtime with Kansas, we beat them. Kansas was exhausted, and they didn't want to go any further with the Aggies. They just couldn't do it. If Crom uh, Butler's three goes in, I think the Aggies get the upset. That still eats at me. All right, more to get through. We've got the region play going on tonight. We'll tell you who's playing where and how you can follow along. Utah Jazz, um, Donovan Mitchell in uh, <laughs> making a lot of waves. Nothing that he did is what somebody else said about him and getting a lot of reactions today. And it continues not just last night, but throughout the day today as well. We'll get into that coming up on the Full Court Press. Interviews, analysis, and a little bit of fun mixed in. The Full Court Press on Sports Talk Radio, 106.9 FM, 1390 AM. The Fan. Tonight in Region 11 Basketball, this is who's playing where, how you can follow along. Mountain Crest Mustangs hosting the Bear River Bears on 107.7 FM for the Mustangs. 104.9 in Box Shelter County for the Bears. You're going to be calling that game, aren't you? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be with uh, Coach Baldwin. Him and I will call that one. I'm excited to work with Coach Baldwin again. He's one of the best. He's awesome. Skyview is hosting Ridgeline tonight. We'll have that here on the fan. Pre-game at 645 with Hurricane John Newbold. Uh, you can also hear it on 104.5, the ranch. Uh, and then Green Canyon hosting Logan tonight. That'll be on 100.9 FM. And on KVNU, 610 AM, 102.1 FM, our good friend Craig Hislop will be on the call. Don't forget, after the games, check out CashValleyDaily.com uh, for photo galleries. You can see uh, galleries some some really interesting girls' games last night in Region 11 girls' play. So go check those out and uh, from what happened last night in the Spectrum as well. So check it out on CashValleyDaily.com. Coming up next hour, uh, Donovan Mitchell and some criticism of Donovan Mitchell making waves throughout the NBA, warranted or not. And uh, we'll get into more of uh, baseball history and Hank Aaron this passing today with uh, Ross Peterson coming up next hour. Stick around. The Aggies, the Jazz, the high schools. If it's the sport you care about, we're talking about it. The Full Court Press on Sports Talk Radio, 106.9 FM, 1390 AM. The Fan. What's going on, everybody? Eric France and Ajay Salveson. Great last hour. Great participation from the text line. Always love it when we have the audience participate. 435-339-0321. Or join us on the uh, message us through the 106.9 The Fan mobile app. A lot of talk about the Aggies. Their start to the conference play. Just kind of what went wrong against Colorado State last night. Um... Before the show, we were yesterday, before the game, I should say, we were talking about all these different publications, all these quote-unquote experts that had Utah State in. Now they lose. And now some are backtracking a little bit about that. Fox College Hoops with Mike DeCourcy, DeCourcy, I don't know, his own bracketology, has as the last four in being San Diego State and Colorado State, 
along with Oklahoma and I don't know who that other team is. Um, and then the first four out is Utah State, Georgia Tech, Rutgers, and Duke. So Wait, Aggies, yes, Duke Aggies, is, that... is the Aggies and Duke out. First well, four out. Well, yeah, Duke's supposed to be out, dude. They suck. <laughs> I don't know how you have Duke, Duke in there. Duke shouldn't be considered. I'd have Utah State over Duke. My heck. Dude, experts my foot. Morons, more like it. I think that the Mountain West will be a multi-bid league. I don't think it'll take someone upsetting the the supposed conference champion in the conference tournament to do it. Question is, will there just be two teams? Will there be three? Will there be as many as four? <clears throat> so here's what needs to happen. Uh, with the loss last night, Utah State cannot lose until they get to Boise. If they want one of those AQ bids, they need to win. Or is it at-large? I guess it'd be an at-large bid. At Sorry. Large. Uh, they need to win. They need to go what? They need to sweep UNLV, sweep Boise State, sweep Wyoming. No, I say Boise State. Sorry, sweep UNLV, sweep Fresno State, sweep Wyoming. That's six wins. Split with Boise, and then turn around and sweep Nevada. They can only lose one game the rest of the way until the tournament, and that's got to be the Boise State. Anybody else, and it, they have to win the tournament, period. Uh, 9315 text in. I think this is so dumb that they say Aggies out. It sounds like someone that has not watched any Mountain West Which game. is true. Game was at 9 o'clock last night, too, so I mean, it doesn't <laughs> it was, really help matters. It was super late. No, I, I'm with 9315. It's it's true. Like, How do you have them in, like, how do you have them past the first four in or last four in to now having them first four out? I don't get how that works. And San Diego State's still in. I, I just, I don't know. Uh, net rankings, Utah State's at a 48. Colorado State is uh, 58. Uh, Boise State's still like 14. They keep hovering between 14 and 17, kind of in that, that range. And then uh, San Diego State, they've... They're now ahead of the the Aggies again. Hey, so let me let me let's throw the consp- which I don't really understand. Since they have more. Let's losses. throw the conspiracy theory game out there again. Uh, Boise State had COVID issues supposedly and avoided San Jose State, who then later pummeled Boise State in the Mountain West Conference Championship game. Is Boise State avoiding? Having to play Fresno State and then Colorado State the following week. Like, you have to play Fresno State and then five days later f- go to Colorado State and play them. No. You don't think so? No. You want to, pl- you want to, look, if you're a team, you want to play and prove that you're the best. You don't think there's any gamesmanship into it, though? I mean, I wouldn't <clears> put it past somebody out there trying to do something like that. We heard rumors of that in, in football, but I don't, I don't, I doubt that. Hmm. Why would Boise State want to duck Fresno? I just. Well, because then you can play Colorado State on rest. No, nah, I don't see, I don't, personally, I don't see that. Hmm. Who does Colorado State got next week? 
Colorado State has Boise oh, State. Oh, Boise next State week. next. Okay, that's right. Sorry. Interesting. Very intriguing. But I guess they now they get a rest for a few days and then wait for Boise State to get there. So, yeah. Uh, let's see. Tonight in the Mountain West, it's Nevada at Wyoming, San Diego State at Air Force. Uh, the other there were other games last night in Mountain West play. New Mexico beat San Jose. That was earlier in the day. That was the Lobos' first conference victory. One of those teams was going to get their first win in conference. Yeah. They were both totally defeated. Uh, and then UNLV beat Benedict. Uh, tonight, uh, as we mentioned, those games that are going on. And then Saturday, it's San Jose, New Mexico, part two. And that's at uh, Dixie State. Uh, a couple of games on Sunday, Nevada at Wyoming, San Diego State at Air Force. And then uh, the Aggies are on Monday. Utah State, UNLV. It's a scary matchup, man, because UNLV is starting to get some swag. I'm not going to lie. I'm kind of worried about it. Uh, you know who else has some swag or should have some swag is the Utah Jazz. Their seventh straight victory. Yeah. They have not trailed once in the fourth quarter during this winning streak that they're on. It's awesome, man. Uh, they were down in the first quarter. And uh, they were able to get it to about even at halftime. And then they pulled away in the third quarter and then never looked back in the fourth. Great team effort by the Jazz. Donovan Mitchell had a great performance. Um, and yet, after the game, um, on TNT, it was a national broadcast. Donovan played well for the national audience. But Shaquille O'Neal wasn't having it. This was his exchange with Donovan right after the game. By the way, this is Shaq. I, I said tonight that uh, you are one of my favorite players, but you don't have what it takes to get to the next level. I said it on purpose. I wanted you to hear it. What do you have to say about that? All right. That's it. <laughs> that's it? All right. That's it. Okay, cool. I, I mean, I wanted you to hear I, it. I've been hearing, well, Shaq, I've been hearing that since my rookie year. You know, I'm just going to get okay, better and well, do what I do. Good. At the end well, of the day. Well, that's what I wanted you to hear you say. Yes, Love sir. your game, brother. Keep it Okay, so it's created a lot of controversy now. Shaq says, I love your game, but you don't have what it takes to get to the next level. So the, the debate that took place during halftime and then it continued after the game as well, Donovan Mitchell, an all-star, yes. Donovan Mitchell, a superstar, no. Does he have the ability to get there? And so, odd that Shaquille O'Neal opens it right up and goes after Donovan after he just dropped, what was it, 36 points? And had a great performance for the Jazz. I thought he had great defense and was a facilitator and did a lot of great things for the Jazz last night. And after that performance, he opens it up and comes after him. Okay, well, let's let's get through a few things on Shaq's end. Um, one, the guy's the most insecure former professional NBA basketball player that we probably know. I mean, anytime Chuck comes after him, Shaq is just losing his mind. If if Kenny Smith makes one bit of a slight, like, "Hey, your shoes were ugly in '04," Shaq's losing his mind. Here's the thing, Shaq. While you were stuffing double stuffed Orioles down your throat, all right, gaining 50 pounds over the summer, and then Kobe Bryant had to take your fat butt and carry you up the stairs to a championship, 
all three years, no one said a word. Everyone kept their mouth shut except for Kobe. But everyone else, you know, just stayed quiet. I think there's a time when you need to step out of the spotlight, realize that no one gives a crap about your NBA career anymore. Okay? Go sit next to your overrated golden statue in L.A. and think about some of the decisions you're making. And are they right choices? Was Shaquille O'Neal an all-star? Yes. Was he a superstar? Yes. But here's the thing. You don't come... Look, if Donovan Mitchell and Kenton... Hasn't he earned the right to give some criticism? No, he hasn't. No, that's not criticism, though, Eric. Eric, What's going on is that if you are... If Donovan Mitchell is kind enough to come join you on your TNT post-game show, he didn't have to, but if he's kind enough to come in and join you on the TNT post-game show, respect that. And by the way, I know Derek Garduno, who is the PR director for the Utah Jazz. He doesn't take crap like that very well. I can tell you that right now. I know him. And so I can promise you that there might have been an email from Derek to TNT saying, hey, next time we have a guy on your station, please have a little bit of respect. Act like you uh, are professionals in something here. So it's it set off quite the debate. Um, oh, my god! started gosh. at halftime with... With I guess Kenny Smith starting the discussion, um, you know, is he is he an all star? Yes. Is he a superstar? No. Uh, and then it it continued after the game, and it's created quite the you know, series of reactions that that have followed. Um, and so I guess before we get into the reactions and and much further, I guess it, it bears. A certain important part of this discussion is how do you determine who is just an all-star and who is a superstar? What is it that someone needs to achieve or accomplish to be considered okay. a superstar? Let me ask our wonderful listeners this, and you, Eric, as well. I ask both the listeners, 435-339-0321, and Eric, what is the time frame that Donovan Mitchell needs to become a superstar by? Because a co-worker of mine today thinks that Donovan Mitchell should have been a superstar in year two. He thinks that Donovan Mitchell should be averaging a triple-double by year three and that Donovan Mitchell should have won the NBA championship and been the NBA Finals MVP by year four. Hello, realistic world. Yes, that, All right? Here's the thing. What the, is the, the expectation that, a very rare of a player? Situation. Look, since 04, excuse me, since 03 to now, there have been two players that I would say have been able to succeed expectations within the first four years. One of them is a very obvious choice, which would be... LeBron James. Amen. The second one's Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant was everything he was expected to be coming out of Texas. By year three, he was phenomenal. Those are the two guys that stand out the most. Um, and... I mean, you think about all the other great players. Steph Curry took a few years, right? He took three years, four years, actually, coming to think about it. Clay Thompson took four years. Uh, Draymond Green got lucky because he's playing with two great shooters. Uh, Anthony Davis took a bit. He had to mature a lot. It just it takes time. And for people to say, well, and then there's his conversation. How long did it take for Michael Jordan to be a, oh, an NBA champion? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, to be an NBA champion, it took a long time. Yeah. For him to be a great player, though, a superstar in the league, took two years. Two years, and he was great. Michael Jordan was phenomenal. 
Uh, he, I think, I'd say he reached superstar status within the first three or four. Really? So later than two? Yeah, I, I would say three. I'd say three at the latest. But here's the question. So, I mean, what do we... And then the other crowd, I guess, uh, from what I was told, because I, I didn't get home until nearly 1 o'clock in the morning. I know you had a late night too, Eric, driving home. Um, the other question is, is I heard Kenny Smith brought up something about, like, Donovan Nip- Mitchell needs to be able to put up superstar numbers. He needs to put up superstar numbers. And I said, okay, what's superstar numbers? And he goes, well, in... He needs to have at least 20 games of double-digit assists and double-digit rebounds. Oh, I'm sorry, because that really gets you to winning. Westbrook has been doing that for how many years? And guess what? Everybody hates playing with Westbrook because he's a stat getter. Donovan Mitchell's not going to tell Rudy Gobert, hey, get the heck out of the way so I can grab this rebound because I need it for my stats. Oh, I have an open look, but I probably need to get my assist numbers up. Bogdanovich, I need you to shoot this and I need you to make it. That's not Donovan Mitchell. He's not a number chaser. He's a win. He's a winning games chaser. Okay. Before the game, you and I both were talking about Donovan. Sometimes has this tendency to wait to really pour it on until the fourth quarter. Uh, I think he's getting better about that. Yes, as he's getting more mature and understanding the game and his role. Um, and I think that was a little bit of the criticism from the TNT crew, and that. Donovan waits to react to what the other team is doing. The great superstars, if we're going to use that term, other teams have to adjust to what they do. And I think that was the point that they were trying to make. I think unsuccessfully in not a very good way. But I think the, the point against Donovan is you have to be great every night. And not just great scoring. You have to affect the game in other ways. Yeah. If your shot's not going, can you affect the games in other ways? Yeah. That Charles Barkley's talking about, you know, I was great at rebounding. I could have I could win the game by how well I could rebound. Mm-hmm. And so you can to reach that superstar status, Donovan has to be able to affect the game in other ways. And I think in that stretch where the Jazz were down last night against New Orleans, he affected the game in other ways. Yeah. He has to do that on a more regular, consistent basis. And he basis. knows that. Look, Donovan doesn't go around saying, oh, yeah, man, I love not playing for three quarters and having a great fourth quarter to help our team win the game. Man, I'm, I am doing awesome. He doesn't say that. He would love to go out there and put up a 40-point night, 13 assists with 12 rebounds. Absolutely. Or shoot 52% from the field, scoring 37 points on efficiency. He would love to do that. And you know what? He's just he's in a bit of a slump, or he's struggling a little bit, or he's trying to figure it out. It's gonna take time. He's f- and 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 here's he's the progressing. Thing. He is. He's growing. See, he's getting better the, every exactly, year. Exactly. That's exactly right, Eric. He's progressing and he's getting better. But yet the NBA pundits and experts and the Hall of Famers say, "Well, you're not doing it quick enough. We're not seeing enough out of you. You're not, you know, you're not proving that you can win an NBA championship in in four years." You're not you're not at that level yet. And I love what 9474 just texted in. Uh, name the superstars in the NBA. Do you include Harden on that list? Uh, Shaq's statement was Mitchell needs to be able to do more than shoot. What the heck else is, uh, does Harden do other than shoot? What about Steph? What about Irving? Shall I go on? See, that's the thing. Is Irving doesn't play defense. Harden doesn't play defense. And yet they get credit as being MVP candidates because they can shoot and score at a very high rate. Steph Curry gets credited for being an MVP candidate because he can hit a 40-footer 87% of the time. 
And he said, like Audrey said, uh, balanced stats don't mean winning. Example would be Westbrook. Right, I agree. Amen. Westbrook was an, is, is an MVP. He's had an MVP season. He's had uh, runner-up finishes to MVP. He was a superstar. Is he today? No. Yeah. But he's had that level. But you're right. Um, there, I think the different things that would differentiate one an, an all-star from a superstar. Yeah. I also think that Donovan maybe is handicapped a bit by being in Utah. If his game, the type of game he he plays, if it was taking place in Los Angeles yep. or Miami yep. or New York or Boston, we see highlight reels every night. Uh, nine four six three. If we say Donovan's ceiling is right around Dwayne Wade's career path, then Donovan is ahead of that. Absolutely. But it does require them to have a deep, deep playoff run this year, beating a high level team like Portland. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. Yeah, and 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 then that and I think that's the the next thing that Donovan needs to accomplish is get past the second round, get into the Western Conference Finals. If you can do that, we are on the right trajectory, and we are going to see this team be a championship caliber basketball team for the next few years. That's how it becomes a household yeah. name and a superstar. Exactly, but it's going to take that time. And and the people keep coming out and saying, "Well, he hasn't been past the second round yet." For goodness gracious, dude, he put up, I mean, he was the only guy who was consistently scoring in that Nuggets series. Without Donovan, Jazz probably lose that series four games to one. And then without Boyan, too. Exactly. And in that OKC series, without Donovan, they probably lose that game four games to two. I mean, it's just, like, everyone's getting so nitpicky about Donovan. He's got to do this. He's got to do that. Look at, and I love what 9463 said. Look at where Dwayne Wade's career path is. Put that in line with Donovan Mitchell, and you're going to look at him and be like, dang. Ernie Johnson closed it out, pointing out Donovan only has one game with double-digit assists and one game with double-digit rebounds. So, Does it matter, though? Because are you going to tell Rudy Gobert, hey, would you get out of the way so I can get more rebounds because I want to become a superstar player? Like, that's not his job. Rudy Gobert is underneath there. Let him take care of the boards. No, but I think the point is, can you affect the game in more ways than just scoring? He, but he doesn't need to because he's in Utah. It's different. It's different. And, so, he's, and he's not so a number chaser. He benefits from the system rather than just his pure talent. No, he's got pure talent, but he doesn't need to go chase a rebound. He doesn't need no, to I go there that. and chase a rebound and, 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 and like push Gobert out of the way. It just it doesn't make any sense. Be the outlet guy. Run the, I mean, you'll get the outlet pass. Run the offense. Create an opportunity for someone to score or go score yourself. There's nothing wrong with being that guy. You don't need to go get 20 rebounds. Don't force anything. That doesn't need to be forced. Like, Russell Westbrook does that, and guess what? Again, I love what 9474 said. Just it's a stat stuffer without any titles. So uh, I'm not going to go through all of them because there's a lot of people reacting to that exchange last night that happened on TNT, and the vast majority of people are in Donovan's corner here uh, on Instagram. Cuffs the legend. I'm not exactly sure who that is specifically. But says, why are young players so sensitive when the OG legends give them constructive criticism? When did the respect level change? And then um, Kevin Durant jumps in to defend. You know, them old heads need to enjoy retirement. These boys have coaches they work with every day. And then uh, LeBron James. There's a difference between constructive criticism and soft hating, though. I've seen it both ways come my way, mostly the hate. You can hear it in their delivery. So, 
it's been it's created an interesting discussion. The bottom line here is there's a lot of people talking about uh, Donovan Mitchell today and his play and the Utah Jazz and the run that they're on. So I suppose that's the silver lining in all of this. Uh, I also think it, it helps put a chip on Donovan's shoulder. And he likes to go out and prove people wrong. And uh, look, I think you have to look at where this guy has progressed as a player. And his defensive game last night was on point. Seven rebounds last night. Can't tell me the guy wasn't doing a lot of different yeah. things. Uh, and he is becoming more and more the facilitator of the team, too. Five assists. Just look, Shaq, just go back, grab some more double-stuffed Oreos, sit on your banana chair, stare at your stupid gold statue that shouldn't even be there because Kobe Bryant bought you that statue, and think about some of the dumb choices you make in life. And don't worry, we all do it. Well, I think Shaq has a history of... Pettiness? No, it's sharing that kind of criticism to get under these guys' skin so they go out and do something about it and to prove him wrong. No, it's not. He has a history no, it's, of no, doing it's, that. An, it's, it's an attention seeker because, yeah, if they do go do that, then Shaq's going to be like, you know what? I told that guy, I told him he plays like crap and then he sucks at basketball and he got 50 tonight. Sometimes you just got to say something to him. And you're not his coach. That's not your job. Your job is when you get a player on your post-game show, ask him questions about the game and his improvement in the game of basketball. Don't come out there and put on your own agenda to say, well, hey, I uh, didn't think that you were an elite-level player. I just want you to know that. That's not your job. It is a post-game interview for the player of the game. Act like it. That's so embarrassing that a Hall of Fame player has to act like a five-year-old baby. I am so annoyed right now by this guy. I swear, if I see him, I'm going to go up to him straight up <laughs> You're and say, gonna guess run. what? Oster Tag is a better basketball player than you. You will run and hide. Eat it. You will run and God, hide. God, I hate that guy. All right, coming up next, we're going to switch gears dramatically. Yes. Uh, we're going to throw it in reverse and go a totally different direction. Let's bring in the wonderful Ross Peterson. <laughs> we're going to go that low key, but we're going to talk. <laughs> Hank Aaron passed away today, broke through a lot of different color barriers, um, and uh, Ross has definitely studied a lot of these things at Utah State, great historian, lover of baseball. So uh, we thought we'd bring him in to talk about it and to, yeah, get an update on how, th- how things are going in Ross's life. So stick around. This should be a fun conversation. Coming up next here in the Full Court Press. It's the Full Court Press, weekday afternoons from 4 to 6 on Sports Talk Radio, 106.9 FM, 1390 AM, The Fan. Eric Franson, and Ajay Salveson here on the Full Court Press. Ajay, you got you got pretty worked up there. You're uh, you're going to go tell Shaq what's what. When no, you because him. I had some a coworker who thinks he's a basketball genius. I had to put him back in his place today and tell me, hey, why don't you put on your bike shorts and go another bike another five miles <laughs> in your basement, man? All right, I'm not putting up with his with this baloney. I don't have time for this. Uh, there's going to be more, I'm sure, of more reactions. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. we 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 got plenty of it, didn't we? Uh, hey, today, um, kind of a yeah, somber day for fans of baseball. Hank Aaron uh, passed away at the age of 86, retired back in 1976, a 23-year Major League Baseball career, uh, spent time with the Braves and um, was uh, while they were in Milwaukee and while they were in Atlanta and, and finished his career back in Milwaukee, now with 
uh, with the Brewers, but uh, set a lot of different records as we talked about earlier on in the show. And um, I, Ross Peterson reached out to us today, and uh, this is a uh, hey. You know, it's a, a big show when Ross Peterson's like, "Hey, I don't know if you guys got some time, but I'd love to come on." Yeah, I'm like, I mean, oh, are you hey. kidding me? Yeah, let's do this. Ross, you've uh, you've got an interesting connection with with Hank Aaron. You've met him personally. Yes, that's right. I think uh, you know, as a young man growing up in Idaho in the '40s and '50s, you didn't have television, you didn't have the NBA, you didn't have the NFL, but everybody knew Major League Baseball. And through the radio, and we could get the game of the day out of Ogden, uh, and then through newspapers and the sporting news. You, you knew baseball, and you knew the story of Robinson, and I've told the story before, but uh, my brother taught me how to dumpster dive when I was about eight behind the drugstores in Montpelier, and the reason you dumpster dive was to find the old sport magazines, the sporting news. This is before Sports Illustrated, but anyway, that uh, they would... Uh, They'd tear off the front page if they hadn't sold it that week. And then they'd just throw it away. And then we'd come down Monday evening or afternoon and dive and go down in there and find these old sporting magazines. And there was this uh, headline, Spawn and Sane and Pray for Rain. It was 1948, the Boston Braves. And so we became Boston Brave fans. Then we followed them to Milwaukee. And then in 1954, when Henry Aaron came up as a 20-year-old, he was one of the last guys that actually played in the, in the Negro Baseball League, played for a team in Indianapolis when he was, I think, 19. And then the Braves bought his contract for $10,000. And they sent him down to the major leagues. They bought him when he was 18, and they sent him down to the minor leagues. And then he came up quickly when Bobby Thompson, their left uh, fielder broke his leg in spring training and and he just he just caught my imagination and so many many years later 1973 I'd written a grant to the National Endowment for the Humanities to study how the different states that had segregated schools responded to uh, the Brown versus Board of Education decision and then I planned the trip in Atlanta around an eight brave home eight game Atlanta Brave homestand. And this was the year before he passed Babe Ruth. And people were just starting to notice what was going on nationally. And I'd always been a Braves fan, and I had uh, I wanted to meet him and Eddie Matthews, and Eddie Matthews was managing the team then. And so I'd go work in the archives, and thank heavens the archives closed at 5, and I'd go right to the ballpark, and go in and watch batting practice, and I went down and met him. And the first time I was so awestruck, and I mean he's only seven years older than I, but it, uh, I didn't even, you know, I didn't even bring anything for him to sign. You know, he just looked at my hands like, "Where's your pen? Where's your program?" You know, <laughs> and uh, and then uh, and so uh, you know, two or three times before the game, in between batting practice and that, we'd just visit because not very many people were going to the games. I, I've gone back and looked at the – you can go back online and see the attendance of every game. And they were averaging about 4,000 in Fulton County Stadium that held about 55. So, you know, you could just get right right down there. This was in April. It was early in the season. 
and they were struggling. And then that week I saw him three hit hit three home runs. But then the year he went into the Hall of Fame, we had him come here to Utah State. And he gave a speech up in the old uh, Chase Fine Arts Center, what they now call the Danes. Uh, uh, we used to have a convocation where you'd bring people in every quarter, a few people. And uh, and I met him and got to introduce him there. And uh, and this time I you know was loaded with baseballs, you know, for him to sign for my boys and different people that were there. And and then. Uh, he he just he kind of quizzed me. How do you? He said, "Do you have a college team?" We said, "No, we don't have a college team." And and you know it was in February, and it was you know there were about two feet of snow on the ground. And he said, "Well, how do you how do you play baseball here? How do you get interested in baseball?" And so I I wrote up something, and he said, "Just tell me and send me because I'm always interested in this." And he was working for the Braves then in the front office. And so I sent him down and we corresponded a little. And then uh, I'd always hoped sometime to see him again and introduce my, my sons. But uh, anyway, it was just uh, there are many things that appealed to him besides to me about him besides the records. I, I don't know how he'd have fit today, because, but he, he was not marketable. He, he just played baseball. And uh, there's a great interview that uh, I was just looking at today, an old David Letterman interview about whether or not he was faster than Pete Rose or whether or not. But he said he never, in another interview with Dan Patrick, he said he, he knew if he was over 180 pounds, he was overweight. He was about six feet tall, 180 Wow. And uh and I always played the outfield. Those last two years up at Milwaukee, uh he DH'd. Uh and he kinda wanted to go there and Bud Seelig was the owner of the Brewers then and uh and brought him back. I mean, he was he was past his prime, obviously, but uh in those two years I think he hit thirty two home runs up there. But uh anyway, I just thought he had so much humility and and just distinguished himself, and then when he published his autobiography called "If I Had a Hammer," uh, everyone had known that in those last two or three years, as he got closer to Babe Ruth, and this is where it tied into civil rights with me, because uh, he was just inundated with hate mail and death threats, and he couldn't often travel with the team. He had to come into the ballparks on the road in a different gate. He had full-time uh, security people with him, and especially in some areas. And late in the 1973 season, as he got very, very close, you know, he broke the record about the third game of the season in the spring of 74. But but he's, he did not play much in September of 73. He probably could have broken the record that year. But the death threats were so intense that that but but then he always kind of spoke out through his actions and through his demeanor and and about you know how you carry yourself, how do you manage your life, how how you don't bring attention to yourself by thinking you're good. You just display it by being good. Hmm. And I think uh, that's kind of the way he spoke when he spoke up here. And so 
you know, not that uh, it's a different generation. You know, you're talking down the road a number of years, and you've got social media. You've got a variety of ways that people can make money through uh, marketing things. Uh, but but he was always so calm. Uh, you know, they asked him what he remembered the most about that 715th home run. And he said, they had my mother down there by the dugout just in case. And when he crossed home plate and started toward the dugout and the team was coming out, by the time he got to his dugout, his mother grabbed him. And he said he'd never been hugged so hard that he thought he was going to lose his breath. <laughs> and you think of all the things you'd remember about breaking Babe Ruth's record, it was a relationship between him and his mother. And that just epitomized uh, how he was. And I thought today, you know, and really in part, uh, Jay and Eric, you know, just the exchange that happened last night uh, that you talked about between Shaq and, and Donovan, in, in a way it was, it was embarrassing, but it's also typical of the world we live in, that you want to put people on edge, you want to put people down, you want to uh, let them know at a certain time they're never going to be as good as you were, that kind of mentality. And that was something that Aaron wouldn't deal with. When Bonds was coming up, you know, and getting close to the 755, and and because they'd also started to talk about the use of steroids and performance-enhancing drugs, and you'd gone through the McGuire-Sosa thing, and and uh, and so the home, whether or not it was a, the home run record, whether it was going to be cheapened if someone passed him, and... And when Aaron was interviewed about it and whether or not he would attend, because he'd had a big conflict in, uh, in 1974 with the baseball commissioner about the Braves, the, the Braves wanted him to break the record in Atlanta, but they opened up in Cincinnati. And he had a home run opening day, which, which tied the record. And Bowie Kuhn ordered him to play the second day. And, and they got in a conflict because Aaron said, you know, the team wanted him to break it in Atlanta. He'd like to break it in Atlanta. But if he was going to play the game, he was going to play the game. And if you play the game and you got a pitch that you could knock out, you're going to try to knock it out. And so he didn't play. So Kuhn didn't come down to Atlanta, the commissioner, when, when he might break the record. And so with that in mind, he just said, I'm going to, in whatever year Barry Bonds broke the record, he just said, I played the game the best I could in the major leagues for 22 years. And the things that I did are documented as only baseball can document them. And that's my record. That's my life. And how people evaluate some other player's life, that's how they'll be evaluated. I'll stand on my record. He wouldn't get into the fray about whether or not performance enhancing or whether or not, uh, you know, uh, when they, uh, they, they, let's see, they lowered the mound after 1968 because the pitchers were so dominant that year, Gibson and McLean and Lolich and those guys. And so it made it easier. So people said, well, it was easier for Aaron to do it because they'd lowered the mound. 
that just wasn't the way. You, the rules are the rules. You play by the rules, and your record stands for itself. And so I just thought it was a, an interesting time to be re- reflecting back on on the role of athletics in society in that, that Aaron was always, you know, when I went to Atlanta in 73, that was only five years. I, in fact, I was down there almost five years to the day that uh, Martin Luther King had been killed in Memphis, mm. and they'd had the funeral there in Atlanta mm. at Ebenezer Baptist. And so, uh, you know, it wasn't that long after. And, and Aaron was consistent. His role was as a ball player. And when people ask him, you know, uh, it was right after the Kurt Flood case where Kurt Flood challenged the uh, Major League Baseball's ability to trade him. You know, he'd been all those years with the Cardinals, and they traded him to the Phillies, and he didn't want to go. And just like when Jackie Robinson got traded to the Giants, and, uh, and he retired because his view was, I'm not a product that can be bought and sold. And, and that's what Kurt Flood had said. And then people were critical of that uh, Robinson was only the, only the former players stood up for Robinson, none of the current ones, none of the superstars. And, but they were still owned by a team. This was before free agency. And, and then uh, – Right after that is when the players' union said the problem with having Kurt Flood do it, he was a black kid from Oakland. So they got Andy Messersmith and Dave McNally, two white pitchers, and they went all the way to the Supreme Court and won the right of free agency. Mm. And, and Aaron spoke on that. Mm. And so, you know, their opinions are important, and, and sometimes athletes, you know, if they get involved in the – politics like last summer and the whole black lives matter and things like that then people say well they just should play ball but if they're just playing ball and don't say something yeah then they're not part of their community exactly and so it's always been a conflict so i've, I've just rambled on and that's a no you're with you know, I'm, I'm programmed yeah, that's for great. 50 minutes and i'm back teaching so i apologize i know you're good <laughs> no that's, that's awesome. great hey can we take a break we'll come back and we'll get more from ross pearson Absolutely. uh historian baseball historian of all sorts and uh we'll pick his brain some more uh, here on hank aaron uh coming around okay, the full court press uh, uh henry aaron uh passed away today at the age of 86 and holds many, many different records. Very impactful for a lot of things, not just what he did for baseball. More coming up on the Full Court Press. It doesn't matter who you root for. The Full Court Press has all the high school sports covered. The Full Court Press. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and online at 1069thefan.com. Welcome back to Full Court Press. Ajay had to sneak out. He's uh, he's going to go call a ball game tonight. He's actually going to do the play-by-play for the Mustangs <laughs> as they take on Bear River. So we'll excuse him. Yeah, I worry every once in a while when Ajay's doing play-by-play that he's he's just going to leave his voice somewhere out in the middle of the state <laughs> of Utah. He gets he gets fairly enthused. He gets like Al does. I was I was always afraid Al'd have a heart attack in a close game. <laughs> Yeah, he definitely could get excited. 
Uh, really cool stories about your your personal connection with Hank Aaron, um, just as a, as a fan, and then you got a chance to meet with him, and you got a chance to even bring him to Utah State and associate with him. So really cool that you've had those personal experiences. And what what does he mean? Uh, I mean, just outside of baseball, and how did he help transcend and make things possible for others of color, especially to yeah. to to move on and be able to dream to to reach really some of those highest heights? Yeah, I think I think a couple of things that are uh, that are noteworthy. Uh, he became a philanthropist. Of course, he worked for the Braves. Uh, he, uh, I think, his highest salary with the Brewers was two hundred forty thousand. But but Ted Turner, when he got ownership of the Braves, I think paid him well, got him in, on different boards and things, and and through a lot of education and arts things, he and his wife uh, Billy were able to uh, do a lot of things in the Georgia and the Atlanta area insofar as education and, uh, and also things on uh, child abuse, uh, different things like that through their foundation. And, and again, I think just his demeanor and his relationships and, and as an ambassador, not, for, not just for baseball, but for uh, for humanity and, and how you treat each other and how you give opportunities and how you, you know, fulfill your dreams. Uh, he, he, they did it. They, they've done an amazing work really when you look at it. And of course, uh, being a, a semi celebrity like he was, although he always denied that it did give him access to other donors that would help. And, and they developed some, uh, really fantastic partnerships. And I think, one of the other things that that uh, they worked on, not just him but a number of people in the Atlanta area, was uh, was ways in which you would involve uh, minority businesses in sponsorships and let mm. them have an opportunity to be to be part of the big scene and have ev- events that that related to athletics in that area, especially an awful lot of the youth programs. Uh, you know, Aaron had, had grown up in Mobile, Alabama in a segregated community, and in his autobiography talks about, you know, how on occasion when, when he was young in the 30s and early 40s, the Ku Klux Klan would demonstrate in Mobile, but they, they would come into the African-American communities, you know, the neighborhoods and stuff like that, just as a show of force, not, you know, it's kind of an intimidation act there, but but within that history and culture, there have been times that the, in East St. Louis or Tulsa or a place like that where it turned into violence. And so there was always an element of fear. And and what he felt was, you know, how he, he didn't visualize as a teenager that baseball was an opportunity or a profession. It was something they did. In, but But... But when he got recognized uh, that that he had more talent and, and had an opportunity to perhaps make a living in baseball, uh, he never forgot the the fear of poverty. Uh, I think there were seven or eight children in a four room home, and how hard his dad and mother worked to, to you know to to get him and and his brother Tommy, his younger brother, also ended up playing. 
in the major leagues and played with the Braves for a few years, but, but, but that was never lost on him. So to provide opportunity for participation for children in a community, regardless of color, to provide opportunity for children for education and educational ambition, and then, and then to follow them and track them, I think is one of the things that, that they have done. He, uh, you know, he, he was not one to put himself out personally uh, into movements. He, he was there to support. But uh, I think in reading his book and listening to a number of the interviews, he, he never got quite, quite got over the death threats. Mm. And with the assassination of Dr. King and with some of the other things that had, that had taken place, uh, he, he didn't go out and continue to seek the limelight. Uh, he thought through, you know, service through the foundation, through philanthropy, uh, being supportive of in, within the community, those types of things. And pretty much he stayed confined to the, to the Atlanta area. I was reading something today that there was a newspaper editor in the Atlanta area that uh, uh, was so concerned with the death threats and all the negativity as he was approaching Babe Ruth's record right. that he didn't think he was going to make it. Someone was going to take him out. So he yeah. preemptively had an obituary put together and just filed away because yeah. it was so tense and so real, thought that uh, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't survive to see it. Yeah, and the ownership was real worried about it. And of course, uh, finally, I think uh, I think President uh, President Nixon authorized uh, under was after J. Edgar Hoover was gone, so it must have been L. Patrick Gray and the FBI to assign some agents to be near him too, as well as the the security that the Braves and and I've read a bunch of the things. And so it, crazy. I mean, I mean, it's just. It's just hard to realize uh, hatred that that people would have towards someone who was just really working hard at their job, and just on the basis of race, someone didn't want them to break a record. And uh, I mean, it's hard to it's hard for me to imagine. It's obvious that it exists, and uh, and you know to confront those kind of ideas, and uh, they're still very much you know, part of people's lives. And so, uh, but Aaron had to do that. And, uh, and I, I think it was more in an interview than in his, uh, than in his autobiography. He talked about that, uh, that last year and a half, the stress, the pressure, the things like that. Uh, the last time I saw him play, he was DHing for Milwaukee and it was in Texas in 1976. And you, you never even saw him, watching the game from the dugout as a DH. He'd just come out on deck, hit. If he got on base, he was on base. If it was late in the innings, they'd have a pinch runner come in, and and then it seemed like he disappeared down the tunnel. And I just think that that was the way he chose to be, to not not give someone an opportunity to try to reach what, what they would perceive as some type of fame by taking him out. Ross, it's been a pleasure. I'm so glad that you reached out. Uh, great stories, great personal experiences with Hank Aaron. Uh, tremendous person, tremendous career in baseball, and did a lot of things that transcended sports. And uh, it's always fun to get those personal perspectives on that. So I'm really glad yeah. you reached out today. Yeah. It's, it, it's kind of a sad day yeah, that he's, he's passed. Is. But, but it's been a tough, 
winter actually on Hall of Fame baseball players. <laughs> yeah, there have well, been a number of them die this year, and true. Uh, you know, and with the COVID, you know, and as you get older and you see the effect, uh, it's good to have great memories, and it's I appreciate the opportunity to share them. Well, um, I didn't even get a chance to ask you your opinion of the uh, USU decision. We're out of time, unfortunately. <laughs> But uh, okay, we'll have to have you on another time for that. But all right, appreciate you. you, Ross. Thanks for coming down. Uh, the uh, don't forget we've got high school basketball going on tonight here on the fan. It's going to be Skyview and Ridgeline, uh, starting with about six forty-five. Hurricane John Newbold will be on the call, and uh, other games happening around as well. Mountain Crest hosting Bear River, and uh, Ridgeline. Uh, excuse me, it's a uh, Green Canyon hosting Logan tonight. So a lot of different places to find these games on the radio. Well, full play-by-play coverage on our whole family radio stations and uh, follow along and then uh, check Cash Valley Daily after the fact because we'll have the photo galleries of the games uh, later tonight or early tomorrow morning. And then on Monday, we'll break it down and find out who's going to the Super Bowl after the uh, conference championship games take place this weekend. Have a great one, everybody.